Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Web Chatham Report, episode 34. doing happy saturday i'm doing this a day late again this week i uh got a little busy with work you know work makes you busy sometimes and uh normally i try and do the podcast on friday morning before work hours but that didn't work because i had a lot of work to do on friday a lot of phone screen interviews so i was doing all my normal work on friday in the morning so you know they had these five interviews throughout the day and i was like you know what i'm just gonna worry about the podcast on saturday it's making me a little stressed so here I am on Saturday, two weeks in a row. Uh, maybe uh, or this is going to become a habit or something. That'd be kind of weird. But uh, yeah, yeah, things are going pretty well here in Chatham County. It's a beautiful sunny day. Getting a lot of good juice into our solar system, which is pretty sweet. And uh, our solar system, like our entire solar system is getting a lot of good juice right at the moment, right? But, you know, I'm at our solar panels on our house. Uh, we've had a lot of rain lately, but... You know, that's okay, because I finally found a sweet yellow rain slicker for Jane. It's just the cutest thing in the world. We had like eight days of rain, and I couldn't find one. And then I finally found one, and it cleared up. And I was so bummed. But then we had about four more days of rain, so I got to see Jane in her cute little yellow rain slicker. That was pretty exciting. Uh, spent most of my free time this week moving over uh, this domain I own that I've owned since 1996, stodgy.com. Use it for my mail, like my my mail from applications and websites and systems and mailing lists and stuff like that. It used to be my main mailing address, but it just got overwhelmed with junk mail. The uh, email's on uh, Google, on G Suite, but the domain has just been dormant for ages. And uh, I really, I think since I left Barbarian Group, because they kicked me off of the server there... And before Barbarian Group, it was hosted by some friends of mine, and Andrew, and he had a server that we kept it on. But since Barbarian, it has been offline, and I'm a good archiver, so I had all the documents of the HTML pages and stuff. So this week, I moved them over to Squarespace, which, you know, I, it's, I just did it for ease, right? So... You can't really put HTML up on Squarespace. You can't just put a directory of files and folders up on Squarespace. So I had to like rebuild many of the pages. It's not exactly the same as the old days, but it has most of the old content up there. So that's kind of the fun thing. You get the you get the idea of this mid '90s website we had, uh, but you know it's really really hard to do anything approaching like looking like basic html and squarespace but i think i did a pretty good job i feel pretty good about it that was like my project for the week uh also i signed up for this chat list in chatham county called the chatham chat list which people had been telling me is like where all the action is in chatham county and so i signed up for it it's a it's an old school email list which is kind of fun. I haven't been on one of those in a long time. And, you know, like an email group, you know, I subscribe to a few friends' emails. That's sort of the thing we all do these days besides podcasts, right, is we have emails. 
Uh, I have an email, but I only send out an email for Kickstarter projects and new books. So basically people get like one email a year. And even then I get a couple unsubscribers. So yeah, I don't really want to overuse my email list. But the Chatham County chat list is a good time. There's a lot of people complaining about tree coverage and the new housing development. There's a lot of like local advertising for carts and crafts and used cars. It feels very, very small town. And I really, really like it. I'm into the Chatham chat list this week. Uh, Jane's doing well. She survived her trip to Atlanta with her mom and her grandma, Granny. Janet is Granny. My mom is Grandma. So, you know, we got I got to get used to that sort of uh, naming paradigm. But, yeah, the three of them went down to Atlanta to see Auntie Clara. And uh, so Emma and Clara could go see Metric. And that all worked. And uh, Jane went to the aquarium. You know, the Atlanta Aquarium is pretty badass. Emma and I went there a few years ago. We were down in Atlanta for Dragon Con and visiting Clara. So I've been there, but it was great to see my daughter go to it. Uh, Emma said she was great on the drive down, completely content on the drive, but not happy to be in a new house. And she wasn't really happy with the with the being in Atlanta, but she loved the drive, which, yeah, that kind of tracks with what I understand about my daughter. So I feel pretty good about that. But the worst part is she got home and she basically didn't remember me. <laughs> you know, I saw her one night and then I went to New York and I came home. So... By that point, I'd seen her, you know, remember I had the Chattanooga trip and then they left and then she got back Monday and then I left Tuesday. So, you know, I'd seen her maybe like two days out of the last seven. It was pretty painful and she just did not remember me. But we're back to normal now. Uh, You know, I had her in the basement the last couple of days before my parents came over in the morning. And when my parents came over, she would just cling to my legs. That's her thing she does now. She finally does the cling to legs. It's really cute. And the other super cute thing, oh my God, it's so cute, is Emma taught her to put her like little fists underneath her chin and kind of pose. (laughs) It's like the most adorable thing in the world. It's completely insane. It just freaks me out how cute that is. So that's nice. Everybody's happy again, mostly now. Uh, she loves being with me in the morning. She doesn't care about me in the evening. So, you know, in the evenings, she, she's mama's girl. Like I'm there, but she's completely indifferent to me. But in the mornings, I am the most important thing in the world to her. And it is great. I'm super into it. She spent a lot of my work days this week, just sitting on my lap in the mornings, you know, before uh, like official work hours when I'm doing work, but I'm doing it really, really slowly. I can just do one hand or keep her on my lap. And it's just so cute. It has been so cute this week. I'm super into my little baby girl. Uh, Yeah, let's see what else. Music. Well, Mark Hollis died this week, which is pretty sad. Mark Hollis, of course, one of the creative forces in Talk Talk, who many of you would, of course, know from, you know, their hits, It's My Life and things like that. But their later period albums were just astonishing and basically invented post-rock. And I love them so much. And I listen to them all the time. And he passed away, which is really, really sad, although not entirely surprising. I've had it from, I guess, second jump to second degrees sources for quite some time that he's had had some drug issues. So I wasn't really surprised to see him go at such a young age. But nonetheless, it was very, very sad. I still harbored in my my subconscious a hope that I could see Mark Hollis or Talk Talk live someday in one of these amazing reunions. Crazier things have happened, right? Uh, Kate Bush never thought that would happen. That happened. Loop never thought that would happen. That happened. But Mark Hollis, no luck. So now we're down to Spaceman 3, which hopefully those guys can bury the hatchet. There is some promising news on that front because it is the 25th or 30th, well, it must be the 30th anniversary of Playing With Fire, a seminal Spaceman 3 album. 
and there's a great interview in the quietest and oral history and it has contributions from all the members of space and three uh, jason pierce and sonic boom and pete kember will carruthers i'm sorry pete kember is sonic boom and will carruthers bass man so that was pretty exciting uh yeah it's the first time i've seen them do any sort of joint uh, interview or anything i mean I, i'm sure they weren't in the same room or anything like that the internet makes it easier to do these things but it was still nonetheless a small promising sign so who knows someday never say never on that one right similarly uh new order is doing this uh called transmissions it's on the new order youtube page and they, they did a teaser for it and just a little one minute teaser they're supposed to start next week but they had interviews with all the members of new order uh you know uh specifically uh peter hook was do it was interviewed like everyone else uh jillian gilbert and uh peter and i mean i'm sorry stephen morris and bernard so that is very promising as well. Uh, I've seen New Order play with Peter Hook many times, and I actually enjoy the split right now of seeing New Order without Peter and Peter Hook without New Order because they play very different material, and it's pretty awesome. So I don't really care if they get back together, but it's nice to see them get, getting along again. Also, my uh, Peter Hook auction catalog came in the mail. He's auctioning off all his old stuff. I think I missed the deadline on it, but uh, it's pretty crazy, the stuff he owns, obviously, of Joy Division and New Order memorabilia, what with being a member and all. So that is, uh, whoops, uh oh, hold on. Sorry about that. My wife was uh, bugging me on the IM. I haven't seen her since I got home this afternoon, and I shut the garage door apparently on her. But when I got home, there was some weird dude in a black suburban in the driveway, and I was like, the garage door was wide open, and I didn't see Emma, so I just shut the garage door. <laughs> but I don't know if that was good or not. So she was asking me about that. Uh, anyway, Discogs, uh, on the continuing saga of the Unbunny Black Strawberries CD, that guy didn't pay, so that's great. He told me he was going to pay again, which is interesting. Uh, dude, there's something going on with my mic. I got to fix this. I don't know. I think my baby may have ruined my mic. It's doing some weird stuff. It's making some weird noises. I came in here, and it was unplugged from the USB. I plugged it back in, but I think she might have wiggled something. Anyway, it seems to be working now, so we'll just keep at this. Anyway, so that guy that originally ordered the Unbunny CD has not bought it again. He said he would when he got some money, but then another guy was like, hey, how much is this Unbunny CD? And I'm like, oh, I'm okay. I mean, he asked a question about it, not how much. So then I was like telling them both, I'm like, look, I don't know why there's suddenly two people excited about Unbunny, but, you know, this thing might get sold to one of the two of you. And now I feel bad because I don't really want to sell it, and I want to take it off, like, uh, uh, my inventory, but I got two people interested in it. I'm going to give them till tomorrow. And then I'm just going to take it off my inventory because those unbunny albums are not out on vinyl. But I wonder if like a uh, unbunny appeared in like a TV show or something. And now everybody's interested in unbunny. Uh, and then I had another weird thing happen. I was at work on Tuesday and I sold both my, well, the first two Joanna's house of glamour albums. I don't know if I ever talked about Joanna's house of glamour, but I love this band. They were on a label called Salem records, sort of a 480 type goth label, but out of new Orleans. And they were just amazing. They're actually from Providence, Rhode Island. We had some mutual friends. I talk about Joanna's house of glamour all the time. The first two records and several of those early seven inches. I just love. And, uh, through the years, I've gotten to know a little bit of the guy in Joanna's House of Glamour because we have some mutual friends and we talk a little bit but this time it was really weird so I sold these two CDs and then 
for some reason, I was looking on Facebook midday, which I don't do very often, and it showed me a post from the 4AD group, which it doesn't do very often. I'm in the 4AD group, but it almost never shows me group posts because I never engage with my groups. And it showed me a group post about Salem Mort Records. And in the thing about Salem Mort Records, people were talking about Joanna's House of Glamour. And I looked at the names and then <laughs> there was a guy posting in there and I looked at the order and it was the same dude. He like read this post and he decided to buy jo- both Joanna's House of Glamour Records. <laughs> that was really weird. I'm like, oh, okay, this guy's in the same 4AD group as me. So then I posted. I was like, this is really funny. I just sold both these records on Discogs to somebody in this group. And I was like, they're like one of my favorite bands. I listen to them all the time. I'm comfortable selling them because I have them on vinyl. I didn't say that part. Uh, and then the guy from Gojo and his house of glamour again popped in and then we started talking again. And, you know, the woman that it was his life partner and the bandmate, she died a few years back, which is really sad. And I feel really sad for the guy. It's a real bummer. But he told me about a new album, a new band, a new a new group he's been working on called The Pull of Autumn with some other sort of goth and indie rock people that I appreciate and respect. So I got The Pull of Autumn record off of Bandcamp. The Pull of Autumn is Daniel from Joanna's House of Glamour and Bruce also from Joanna's House of Glamour and Luke Skyscraper James from a band called Fashion and Fred Abong from The Throwing Muses. So that was pretty interesting. I listened to that today. Not today. This week. I enjoyed it immensely. It did have sort of like traces and moments that reminded me of Joanna's House of Glamour. Joanna's House of Glamour is not on Spotify either. So you're going to miss out on that one. You're going to have to buy the CD on Discogs, but I guess I just sold. Um, They are on my Plex. If you ever want to listen to them, drop a line. Let's see. Then I got the, I told you I mentioned this last week. I got the vinyl of the Star Wars Force Awakens soundtrack. So I listened to that this week. Felt like I was back in the movie. It's pretty exciting. Really nice gatefold of uh, Snoke's ship getting split in half with the, you know, the light speed maneuver. So that was pretty awesome. Checked out Bob Mould's Sunshine Rock. The so- it is a rockin' album, very sort of upbeat, fast. Reminds you of the Husker Du Bob Mould or the early, the early Sugar Bob Mould. The good songs are fantastic. I was just driving back from Durham a few minutes ago, and I was listening to one of the songs I started. And man, it sounded great in the car on a sunny day driving through the woods, let me tell you. And then... Speaking of Talk Talk and the, the, the divergent paths of the various members of Talk Talk, there's a new Rustin Man album this week. It's called Drift Code. Rustin Man is the solo act from Paul Webb from Talk Talk, and he's never really sung before. He did no need to sing in Talk Talk, of course, because Mark Hollis has got a great voice. And there's a Rustin Man album a few years back that he did with Beth Gibbons from Portishead. Those guys toured, saw him at the Roxy in Boston. It was awesome. Um, so at least I've seen one member of Talk Talk live. So, But obviously, I had no need to sing in that. He did a little bit of vocals in O-Rang, which was his sort of experimental noise project right after Talk Talk, which are fantastic, by the way but this one he's singing it doesn't sound like talk talk it's almost a bluesy you know not blues but talk talk does the blues kind of thing avant-garde a little bit jazzy a little bit post-rock but a little bit bluesy or folky uh, more traditional vocals and lyrics and it's really good i'm really really into it then i listened to an album by nivik which i originally thought might be nivik ogre uh, kevin key with one of the main men in skinny puppy but it is not in fact it is liz harris from gruber's solo project and she has a great album called after its own death walking in a spiral towards the house which i strongly recommend it sounds a lot like grouper maybe a little bit more atmospheric same sort of moodiness same sort of like uh evocative kind of 
tension. I don't know. Hard to say, you know, but that was a great record. And then I listened to the health volume Four slaves of fear, which is awesome because I feel like health is like the only band in the world that is mining the vein of early nineties, late eighties wax tracks. Like they are great. They remind me of like thousand homo DJs or Revco or ministry or something. And I'm really, really into it. It got a really middling reviews in pitchfork and consequences sound, but they're wrong. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's like front two, four, two meets, uh, you know, sisters of mercy meets like Luke van Acker meets like, uh, the programming, the psycho drill record. I don't know. It's great. I love it. Then I listen to the stars born soundtrack as I watch the movie, which we'll get to in a bit, but, uh, you know, it's great. I'm, that movie really hit me. Well, I guess we'll talk about all that together when we get to the film section. And then uh, Nikki Digital hooked me up with this guy, this uh, this sort of studio artist. It's hard to, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, musician, solo musician, but really uses the studio as an instrument kind of guy. I think he's French. Uh, his name is Chassol, and the album is called Big Sun, and it's a lot of, like, it's it's fantastic. It's got a lot, a lot of bird sounds, and it's really weird, and it's really, really unique. I guess this guy was, like, all over the Frank Ocean album. Uh, he's very in demand as a producer, as a collaborator, but his solo album is really, really great. There's a bunch more I'm going to listen to. They're queued up now. I'm very, very in debt to Nikki for hooking me up with Chassol. That is really great. And then I listened to three Damon and Naomi albums I didn't even know existed. I've totally lost track of Damon and Naomi. I follow Damon Krakowski on Twitter, and he somebody said something, I don't know, he tweeted something about a Damon and Naomi album, and I was like, oh, I don't know that album. And then I looked on Spotify, and they have four albums I didn't even know about. I used to be really good at keeping up on Damon and Naomi. I bought every album. I'd go see every tour. I'd run into them at Thai restaurants in Boston. Uh, Damon and Naomi, of course, are two thirds of Galaxy 500. The two, they are a couple. They also run a publishing company called Exact Change Press. That's really great. But actually, I don't know if they still run that anymore. I should look that up. But uh, so I listened to the last three Damon and Naomi records: Fortune in the 21st Century and False Beats and True Hearts. And those are all great. Only one listen yet each so far, though. So I got to give them a second listen to star some tracks because really all week I've been listening to the X Re album. Um, Ilana Tonra from Daughters solo album just came out on 480 Records. It's fantastic. Also listened to a star track from that in the car and driving home from Durham just now. And it's just that record, man. Somebody really wronged her and we got a great record out of it. It is solid. Turn into TV. Big thing this week would be the Michael Cohen testimony. I watched as much of that as I could. I was at work on Wednesday in New York. Left work, went to the airport and flew home. Watched it in the cab, watched it at the airport, watched it on the runway at LaGuardia for about a half hour. I watched it in the air. Actually, I didn't really have a good luck watching it in the air. I paid the $10 for the internet, which I almost never do. And it wouldn't do video or audio. So I just watched Reddit, kept it up on Twitter. I think I got to my car. Right, as soon as we landed, I put it back on in my headphones. And then when we got in the car, I put it on in the car. <laughs> and then just as I was arriving at Moe's to get Emma her burrito that I always get her on the way home, they're like, we're taking an hour break. I'm like, oh, thank God. So I could like drive the rest, get the burrito, drive home, have a burrito with Emma and come back downstairs to finish the work day and listen to the rest of it once I got down here. Uh, you know, interesting, not a ton of new stuff, but a lot of stuff put on record. And I think the Democrats are being very smart about this because this week, all the talk is about Alan Weisselberg. And I've been going on about Alan Weisselberg for like a week. That's a lie for like months. I've been going on about Alan Weisselberg since there were the first rumors that he was flipping and cooperating. But they and, you know, they could have subpoenaed him at any point, but they're like building this case and they're building a case for like getting his tax returns. And so it's very clever in that way. Um, 
But anyway, at this point, I think it's pretty clear. Like the Republicans didn't even put up a defense. They just kept calling Michael Cohen a liar. They never actually, uh, one guy once was like, you do have any evidence? He's like, well, aside from my check to Stormy Daniels and Trump's check to me and the fact that Trump's lawyer said on TV that they paid for it. And he's like, but do you have any evidence? And he's like, yeah, well, that's all evidence. Uh, it was pretty ridiculous, but you know, it seems pretty clear that there's a lot of different crimes. Maddow went on we watch a lot of MSNBC this week, the analysis of it as well about the, you know, this one house that he owns in, in, uh, in a rich, I can't remember what, not Yonkers, something up there, not Westchester County, but some County up in North and Manhattan of New York. That on an insurance application, he caused that it was worth 290 million and then uh, 200 over 200 million. I don't remember how much, which is insane because it would make it one of the most expensive houses in the United States. And it's not that nice. And then on his financial disclosure form for president, he said it was worth 20 to 50 million and it was last appraised at like 19 million. He just like elevate, you know, and this is all documented. And and so there's very clear path to like sort of getting on financial fraud crimes, not enough to convict yet, but certainly enough to like subpoena. And he, you know, the Cohen made a point of saying, it was all at Deutsche Bank, and we've been hearing for a while that Mueller may have subpoenaed Deutsche Bank or gotten stuff from them, but then it was maybe that didn't happen, but now the, uh, the House of Representatives is going to be subpoenaing Deutsche Bank, so Deutsche Bank, so stuff's happening there, and, and you know, he's bolstered the the basic uh, collusion charge that Trump seems to think is the only thing anybody's talking about. And it's kind of a minor sideshow at this point with uh, a speaker phone call. And then people are like, you have no other evidence. And he's like, I just told you that it was a speaker phone call. And there are four people in the room. If you really cared, you could just subpoena the other people in the room. You know, <laughs> I'm stating other witnesses to these facts. It's like, they're just idiots. It's really fascinating. Uh, and then of course this week, the Oscars. So Emma was out of town. I had just finished watching like the last couple of best picture nominees the night before settled in. And, you know, because Jane wasn't here, I could actually stay up and I was ready to have to stay up till midnight to watch the Oscars, but they didn't actually go that long. Uh, the no host format rules. They never need to have a host again. I mean, you know, Tina Fey and Maya Rudolph and Amy Poehler did a little host like intro, but other than that, it just went along at a great clip and it turned out it was over well before midnight, like 1115. So, I mean, props to them, you know, I got to bed on not much later than normal and I could sleep in. I got like nine hours of sleep that night. It's pretty much like the Oscars always are for me. I, I, you know, I don't predict because I'm bad at predicting and everybody always predicts and they are always get it right. And because I have too much like opinion, I have too many feelings and I want certain things to win and they never win. I love Cold War. It's probably my favorite movie of the year. And I wanted it to win one of the things, best foreign film or best director. It didn't get either one of them. So that sucked. Uh, Spider-Verse got properly. That was nice. They got there. They got their best animated feature thing. That was good. Uh, but, you know, Green Book winning Best Picture was just a tragedy. Uh, most of the rest were fine. I feel like, you know, the uh, the editing to Bohemian Rhapsody was a bit much. It's not a well-edited film by conventional standards, but, you know, they feel like the editor deserves credit for salvaging the film when their director's screwed off and was an asshole and disappeared and they fired him. So, you know, I guess, yeah, he deserves credit, but it doesn't mean it was well edited. You know what I mean? That was kind of a bummer. 
I don't know. And I love Roma. I think it's great and it deserves the accolades it got. But, you know, really, like, aside from Bohemian Rhapsody, deeply flawed because of its last editor, but salvaged into something great. Rami Malek obviously deserved his award. Uh, and Green Book, I would have been cool with any of the other films winning Best Oscar. So that's kind of a bummer. Uh, I wanted Richard E. Grant to win, of course. That didn't pan out. I really love that guy. I've loved him forever. Uh, anyway, the Oscars, I was texting with a friend of mine who's not really into the Oscars because Emma wasn't here. So I was like, you have to watch the Oscars and text with me. <laughs> so I had company. That was really fun. Uh, and then, you know, we're still watching the crown. We're on season two. It's great. I'm really into it. I think that show is probably doing more for England and making them respect their constitutional monarchy than anything in ages. And I got to say, it's really bringing me around on the constitutional monarchy. I never really thought they were worthwhile before, but I'm looking at our situation now and that, and I'm like, Oh, maybe there's not something so bad about it. But then again, of course, England's just as screwed up as we are right now. So who knows, but it's a great show and I'm excited to get to season three with the all new cast. I think that's kind of an interesting thing, two seasons with one cast and then you get a new cast and there's new people. That's going to be really fun. Uh, I'm excited about that. And then we're still watching the Orville, which is just awesome it is better than Star Trek. I'm not going to watch Discovery till the whole season's done. I binge season one. I'll binge season two. Uh, I can't remember why, but I just figured out I have CBS somehow. I don't remember, but uh, I will get around to watching Discovery. Now that I'm done with the Trek book, I don't feel such an obligation to catch up on it all the time. But the Orville is great. And the episode we watched last night was intense. I mean, that was just intense. And, you know, like one thing I love about it is it's episodic like Star Trek, but it's not. It also it's it accommodates modern television where like profound changes happen to cast members. They live, they die, they go away, they get married, uh, you know, which rarely happened in episodic TV. That's really intense. And then they, they talk like humans, you know what I mean? There's this little scene in this one. They're doing tests, right? Like drills and tests on the ship and checking out their new shields and doing little war games. And Emma's like, hey, you never saw this once in Star Trek ever. But you'd think this is probably like what they do probably half the time. you know? And I was like, that's a really good point. But then the, the, the chase ship accidentally fired a photon torpedo at them instead of just phasers or lasers or whatever they call them. And, uh, you know, it was fine. It hit him. And then he was like, hey, don't use photon torpedoes. We said no photon tor torpedoes, which that could have happened in Star Trek. But then he like, and you're kind of like, is this a plot point? What's going on? Why did that happen? But you know, they're, they're the same way. He's like, he looks to his first mate. And he's like, didn't I tell them no photon torpedoes? Did I? And she's like, you totally told him that. And he's like, I thought I totally told him that. And then that's it. That's the whole plot point. Like, it's just like reality. You know what I mean? It made me really happy. I was like, this is... This is so much like humans talk. It really just makes the whole thing feel more real, you know? And then there's like, uh, there's a whole thing in this second time, a, a planet in the their version, the United Federation of Planets, I can't remember what they call it, Unitary Planet Union, uh, they, that has just, uh, like rules and opinions totally different than ours and it's totally weird and it really reminds me of states rights and like our arguments about abortion rights and things like that and gay marriage by like a few years back and it's very subtle and they never kind of say it out that way and on this one they went to a planet that is basically like a i mean it's not even homophobic it's beyond that and they're like, that planet's really weird and really different than us. And they're like, yeah, right. And it's like, but they're a member of the union and like, they haven't really explored it yet. But at this point they've explored so many crazy things that Star Trek was always too chicken to explore that like, I feel like it's inevitable. I mean, they're exploring it obviously, 
they've done it twice they've dealt dealt with this planet in its weird ways but they haven't got to like the full like governmental level of exploring it yet like how do these people work together in a union when they're so different but i feel confident that they're going to because he doesn't shy away from that stuff and then manu sadia who wrote uh trekonomics which is another star trek economics book he was inspired by my essay and then he did the forward for my book we got a little symbiotic thing going on there but he kind of knows seth mcfarlane a little bit and there was a couple episodes back there on a planet and seth mcfarlane has to explain how the economics of the planetary union work and manu was like that is a total nod to like our books and i was like oh that's pretty cool mainly his book because he knows him but I was like, that's awesome. Like that one speech was more detailed about the economics of their union than Star Trek has ever given in ours. I mean, the orbital is just great. I mean, my friend Sean posted recently that he's like, that's, it's got the true heart of Star Trek. And I really think it does. So movies, watch three movies this week. Last Saturday when Emma was out of town, I plowed through the last two best picture nominees that I hadn't seen. Uh, they both came out before Christmas, the holidays when I can start doing my really good movie drill down so i didn't get to see him and they took him this long to come out on itunes so i finally got to watch can you ever forgive me and a star is born i really didn't care about a star is born i mean I, you know bradley cooper's a cool dude and uh and i seen lady gaga live and i'm aware of her talent but she's not necessarily my thing but uh my god that movie just kicked my ass it was very very good it was not what i expected it was intense and now it makes me like those songs that i've been hearing everywhere uh very well done just the ability to accomplish all those live shots and them singing is is impressive. Very uh, that movie deserved far more awards than it got. I mean, you know, the live aid scene for Bohemian Rhapsody is amazing, but these guys are actually doing it, which is even crazier. So, I mean, I actually bawled at the end. Uh, what can I say? I'm I'm a sucker for messed up, depressed white guys, right? I I, I bond with them. I understand where they're coming from, and he wasn't that terrible of a dude. I mean, he definitely got too drunk and said some mean things once, but he wasn't like a violent guy or anything like that. So I'm always a sucker for benignly miserable, substance abusing dudes that don't have their shit together because I feel like I spent about 20 years of my life like that before I finally shaped up. So, you know, got to feel some sympathy for him. And then Can You Ever Forgive Me was really well acted, but it was very cringy and it was very hard for me to watch because I have empathy overdose on these kinds of films and I was watching about half of it through, like, you know, my fingers. But Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant just did great. They both did great. The script is hilarious. The story is great. Uh, I wisely rented it because I had a hunch I'd never be able to watch it again, and that's probably true, but I did enjoy it very much. And then today... I just got back. That's the other reason I'm doing the podcast so late in the day. It's a little after three o'clock now. Because it was the only time this week that I was able to go see a movie that's only out for a week, which is the Apollo 11 documentary in IMAX. And I just went all the way to Durham to the AMC South Point to see it at the 11.45 showing. And it was fantastic. I mean, so the thing with this movie is that the director found a large amount of 65 millimeter documentary footage from an abandoned Hollywood project about Apollo 11, like a documentary project that was in the National Archives that was finished by uh, NASA people also in high resolution 65 millimeter prints. And none of, most of this footage has never been seen, right? It's not enough to comprise the whole film, but it is a large amount of the film is IMAX quality 65 millimeter footage of the Apollo 11 mission the cruise, the prep, the launch, just, I mean, amazing, amazing footage that you've never seen of this. And it is astonishing. 
the part in space and the moon is awesome because they do it all in sequential order. They do the travel to and from, they do all the flips of the spacecrafts and the launches and detaches and retaches. But most of that footage is not high res. The photos are, and they, they edit it so well and they edit the sound really well. And then the landing stuff is just insanely beautiful. Like the aircraft carrier and the ocean and the, like the splashdown and the, Oh, it's just, I mean, so much footage you've never seen and just beautiful. And I sat in the third row in an IMAX theater and, and, I, I just, I, I bawled at the end. So like at the end of the show, they, like not the very end, but I just, I'm like a country musician. I don't really know this guy, John Stewart. And he has a song called mother country and it's playing in their capsule as they're flying back. And it's on a tape recorder that's spinning like, uh, just spinning weightless in their capsule and playing the song and it's phasing in and out in the original audio. And then they play that song and it's about, you know, like what happened to these great men that, you know, that we see in the pictures and do they love their country? And it's like, this is, you know, panoramas of the people on the aircraft carrier and all the people. There's so much amazing high res footage of the people at like ground control and Kennedy and Johnson space centers. And I was just like so close to bawling. I kind of kept it together. And then they did the like John F. Kennedy speech. We choose the moon speech. Like mom, montage with them in their like mobile quarantine capsule coming back and I was just I just started bawling you know and I was like you know it's not like a make America great again thing I feel profoundly like you can notice even in this like everybody that works there is white it's like totally a racist nation you know and but it's like really fascinating to me from the nine years we could do that and now we can't do anything like that in nine years of course because you know we, we have to rely on weird dudes like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos to get us to space and it takes them 10, 20 years because it's you know, too much. They got to earn the money to do it and all this stuff. And, but that's not really all of it. You know, it's sort of like, what is space? And we still do interesting stuff and we go to Mars and men on the moon. Is it really worth it? And I get all of that, you know? And then like, uh, I think a lot about it, like environmental reviews, <laughs> Peter Thiel once in an interview back before he went full, full on evil said, you know, I, I, I don't have a problem with the governments, but it took the government like two years to do the golden gate bridge and something like that. If we did it now it would take 30. And I was like, well, you make a good point there. But then I thought about it more and I was like, well, the reason it takes so long now is we make sure we do it right. We make sure that we don't mess up the environment and we make sure everybody has a say in it. And I don't think those things are wrong, you know, <laughs> like if a, if a bridge is going to like ruin like an ecosystem, then we probably shouldn't do it, you know? So like, so a lot of the reasons it takes us a long time to do things I think are reasonable. I read some article from this libertarian leaning journalism woman recently, her father works in trains and she's trained sympathetic, but she's like, we'll never have great trains anymore because of all the environmental review processes. And I was like, well, I really love trains, but I totally am okay with it environmental review projects anyway my point is i know i'm not sitting there thinking like oh my god we used to be such a more amazing country but in that one aspect of deciding we're going to do something amazing and going and doing it and banding together to do it you still like there's still something impressive about that and i really felt it and you know of course poor kennedy got shot there's a great little moment when they're on day two of their flying out there is uh, the day of chappaquiddick too so you know uh, Teddy Kennedy definitely lucked out because once they landed on the moon, he was pushed out of the papers. People obviously didn't forget Chappaquiddick, but I think that's what saved his ass at that moment. But the, he worked that in. That was pretty nice. Um, anyway, great film. It's really just sequential. There's no narration except for the narration from the mission control and the various crew people. There's a pretty good score, a little post-rock, a little creepy, but well done and, and pretty minimal. 
And other than that, it's just the mission in order as it happens. And it is just, this footage is astonishing. I mean, man, even now, like, you know, they're doing, there's, there's IMAX footage you've never seen of like the separation of the first stage. And they're like 18 miles out and they're using these huge lenses on IMAX cameras. And it just looks amazing. It's, it's, it's a scene you've seen before in lower risk footage, but you've never seen it like with this high. If you can go this week, I guess it's only in, in IMAX one week because, you know, we got to make room for the new Marvel movie which I'm going to go see. But if you get a chance, it's only in the theater for a week, so you should really go see it. It really is astonishing. Books. Uh, so I'm done with the Madeline Lengel. Uh, what do they call it? The Time Quintet. Five books related to A Wrinkle in Time. But you know what? They're not related to a Wrinkle in Time. I, I feel like I was sold out. I mean, like, you know, a Wrinkle in Time was a beloved book of my youth. And Charles Wallace, I cared about that character so much. And Meg, I cared about Meg. And like Charles Wallace is in the second book a little bit, but he's mostly like disabled the whole second book. And then Meg is in, I think, the second book. And then they like just kind of disappear. And I'm like, what's going on here? You know, like I, maybe I'm off my one book, but maybe it's the third book. And the fourth book is just about the twins. And then the fifth book is barely related. I mean, it takes place at the house and the, and the parents are there, but it's like, not really them. It's like Meg's daughter, Polly and like some intolerable, insufferable, toxic white dude named Zachary. That's just like the worst. And uh, you know, it's really interesting. It's like, uh, so the, the fourth book is called many waters and it takes place in biblical times, literally straight up like old Testament with Noah. Right. And then, uh, acceptable time. The fifth book takes place back in the same location as the third book. Uh, like in the past on the land of this family, uh, which is interesting, but also hugely problematic because they don't resolve the two. It's a tribe, the same tribe, people of the wind. But in book three, the people of the wind have interbred with these Welsh explorers that came before Christopher Columbus. And they're all known because they're like Indians with blue eyes. And in this book, they've just got like a druid English dude there. No mention of the Welsh. There's like, and there's no mention vice versa. And it's unclear. And time is totally messed up. And I don't mean like in a cool time travel way. It's just like I realized as I was reading this book. Book, I'm like, wait a minute, this, she's just using biblical time. She's actually writing books about science and denying science. She's like, it was 3,000 years ago and the mountains were still tall. I'm like, no, man, that takes millions of years for the Appalachians to be worn down, right? And she's like, it was in the Stone Age 3,000 years ago. I'm like, no, the Stone Age was not 3,000 years ago. Uh, I don't know. It's just really upsetting once I realize that there, it's completely sort of like uh, illogical. There's no internal consistency across these books they're not a time quintet i guess originally they tend to call them a time quartet just the first four and then they added this fifth one it's kind of related because it takes place in the same place but like you know no charles wallace after book three maybe even two i think he's barely in no no he's in three a lot i'm sorry he's in three a lot and then he just disappears meg's gone after book three it's a, it's three books so that was all very frustrating. But one thing I didn't mean to tell you last week about a swiftly tilting planet, and this is kind of like, it's nice because this is why I read these books. I couldn't even remember how many of them I'd read as a kid. I feel like I had read them all. I'm still not 100% sure. But in swiftly tilting planet, there's a point where one character was talking to a unicorn. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the unicorn was explaining things like the stars and how big the universe was and then how small things were like inside her body, body like mitochondria. And when they were talking about millions of you know, universes and galaxies, he's like, that's too macroscopic for my brain. And then when he was getting down into the cells, he's like, that's too microscopic for my brain. And when I got to that sentence, I was like, I remember this. This is what I remember. This is the moment when I was reading this book that I learned the words macroscopic and microscopic. I learned the prefix macroscopic. I learned what they meant. It was like a big epiphany. It's such an epiphany that here I am like, I don't know, 35 years later reading this book again. And I didn't remember the plot of this book at all. But when I got to that like little passage, I remembered it. And I was like, this is the part, aside from the whole first book, that has been in my head and in my subconscious since I first read these books as a child. So I felt pretty good about that. It was not not wasted time to read these five books uh also they re- you know they're really quick so i'm now caught up after gotham to reading one book a week um but you know a lot of it like uh i really it's this kind of same thing happened when i reread the, the narnia books like somewhere towards the end in book five or six i was like whoa this christianity gets more and more over your head by the end same thing with this one by the end it's like she's just using full-on biblical time we've already had noah's ark actually appear in these books and now we've got a priest that just like tells us outright the christian symbolism in case we weren't picking up on it right and i know that originally she like got a lot of like plaudits for like trying to reconcile Christianity and science and that's sort of like her purpose of these books and and like a lot of Christians don't like them because they take make too much of science but I'm like I don't know man it's like by the end she was like there's no science in the there's just no science in the third or the fifth book it's just basically biblical but that's fine. I mean, it's fine. It's just uh, the other thing is, you know, it's like it's like TV, modern TV versus old TV. These books have no internal, no consistency across them. Like the fifth book, Acceptable Time, starts out with some, you know, supernatural stuff happening in time travel. There's a tesseract on their land and it's like sending Polly, the granddaughter, back through time. And the dad, well, he's now a granddad, who's literally the guy played by, you know, Chris Pine in the movie, who's like Meg's father, who's a scientist that advises presidents, literally invented or discovered Tesseracts and has traveled through time to planets. But he's like, oh, don't be silly. That's not possible. And I'm like, dude, you not only know this, you are the one that has figured this out is from for humanity. But he's just like, no, 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 it can't be happening. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's like. It's like they're Nancy Drew books in that way. They're just adventures with no internal, no narrative arc across the books. I mean, I guess that's fine if it's what you're into. And I read a ton of Hardy Boys books as a kid, and there's no narrative arc across the books. But now that bothers me. I, like, want consistency. And I think a lot of us, like, kind of want that. And that's, like, where these, you know, I'm like, I really love the Temeraire books by Naomi Nuvik. They're these sort of, like, Napoleonic dragon books I read a few years back, right? And, like, those books change reality. Like, they start off very parallel to our history, but by the end, it's, like, a totally different world. Every actions have consequences that reverberate through the books. It's, like, one long story story that's what i like i don't like these books that are like oh also like i traveled through space and time but now i don't believe that you can travel through space and time using a a phenomenon in physics that i discovered and now i just don't believe in it like okay that's a problem that bothers me (laughs) and also three thousand years ago there's a tribe here called the people of the wind and they were mixed with the welsh but now we're going back in time to the same people there's no welsh anymore and we're just going to talk about english druids for some reason why can't you just use the welsh again i don't even know but, uh, you know, uh, I had another thought about this, actually. I feel like, never mind. Eh, I'm not going to talk about that.
Well, all I was going to say is that, like, I think that, you know, these books are very, very influential on people of a certain age, and uh, maybe it wasn't all good. <laughs> I guess we won't really go into that. Anyway, work, tech, uh, work. I've been doing a ton of phone screens this week. I've been working a lot, actually, and it's really cut into any sort of doing any other projects, and I've been thinking a lot about that. I'm like, oh, maybe that's okay. Maybe my job is, like, important enough for or productive enough or enough work enough that I don't have to feel bad that between just having a job and having a kid, I'm not getting a lot else done. I don't think I actually believe that, but, uh, I have been doing a lot of work. There's been a lot going on. And then this week I've been doing phone screens. We're doing some hiring. I got Q for finance now, which is awesome. But now we're hiring some programmatic people. We're hiring some engineers. I'm not really involved in the engineer stuff, but I'm working on these programmatic hires, um, you know, onboarding Q. Whenever you hire a new person, it takes a while to get them up to speed and you're doing a bunch more work until they are up to speed. So a lot of like writing copious onboard documents, teaching them how to pay the 401k, pay the bills, like do this, file invoices, do that, deal with, you know, this getting, we're going to get an audit. So I've been dealing with audit RFPs just a lot of like business stuff. I just run a business and sometimes running a business takes some work. And this week it's taken some work. I hired some consultants. Uh, so I had to go through their contract and their MSA, which let me tell you, man, after doing contracts and proposals for 20 years, you don't want me in the other end of your proposal. <laughs> the guy was like, you're the first person ever to point out that inconsistency about, about the, the tax on uh, aging accounts payable. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, that's me. And I was like, your travel policy doesn't make any sense. You need some more here on the travel policy. <laughs> and that one you could tell he'd gotten before, but, uh, you know, anyway, lots of work. I've just been doing lots of work, but it's all going well. Revenue's great, profitable in February, solidly so, even with the new hires and the spending on the consultant. Audits are expensive. You'd think I would have known this with all my years working in audit at Ernst & Young and whatnot back in the early 90s. Man, audits, they're expensive. Jesus. But I think we're well prepared for the audit. I feel pretty good about it. Q was pleasantly surprised how well the filing systems were there. So this is going to be my, this is going to be another badge of honor in my operations thing. If there's like, you know, merit badges for being a COO, surviving an audit without it being too much of a hassle should be one of them. And that's what I'm going for here. I feel pretty good about it. Another tech, I guess Elon Musk is our thing for the week. Uh, he tweeted out that like, oh, you know, it looks like we're on track to make 500,000 cars this year. And then he recorrected. He was like, ah, I'm sorry, I mean, annualized rate of 500,000. And then everybody freaked out and they're like, oh, my God, the SEC. Oh, my God. And there was rumors the SEC was getting because he's violating their consent decree. And he he even pointed this out. He said, guys, read our last uh, like report. I The range in the last report goes up to 500,000. I have said nothing new in this tweet, but you will not find that in any of the news coverage people just love to hate the guy and i kind of love to hate the guy too sometimes because i think on the other news he's closing all their stores literally just closing all the tesla dealerships maybe it's because they're broke some friend of mine said that's part of the theory he is finally getting the thirty-five thousand dollar model three out that's very exciting but he said in order to do it we need to close all our dealerships and i'm like that doesn't make any sense and i mean this is just weird right and like i mean people need to do trade-ins they need to do financing they need to do repairs and customer service and tesla has other products like power walls and solar panels and they're going to be doing these solar roofs and it's like you need to look at this stuff i mean i guess i don't know i just bought two power walls without seeing them so maybe you don't need to but it just strikes me as really really weird <laughs> 
especially when you think of like the greatest retail turnaround in the history of the 20th century and it was apple and they're opening their robust dealer network or their robust uh store network after everybody else was very terrible at selling apple products it was a huge component of the turnaround i mean no not iphone level turn component of the turnaround but it was definitely part of the story and he's just closing them all and i'm very very skeptical about that the way of Amazon. So last week, the budget director of the state of New York wrote an open letter. I don't know why he did this. He was just pouting or in hindsight, I think I guess I can guess why he did this. But at the time, it just looked like sour grapes. And he was like, all these people were lying about the Amazon deal, blah, 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 this, that. And, you know, two things about this letter bug me. One, it was internally inconsistent. He repeatedly said it was local opposition, like that was bad. And then he blamed it all on a specific union, like that was bad except for the union's national and they're not localized. I guess saying localized opposition, but blaming it on the union, this national union. And then it was like, the union was really not really related. They were the union of workers at the whole foods and they were pressing because they wanted the commitments on the whole foods. And he was like, typically what you do is you wait till a company is operating in the state before you press them on the union. And I'm like, dude, the company's in the state. I don't know if you looked out your window, but there's more than one whole foods in New York state already. Like my point is the letter just made no sense on its own. Right. But then, on top of that, it lied because it said these are all tax refunds. They are only going to be tax rebates or discounts as they grow. And I was like, I don't think that's true. I remember reading when it first came out that this involved cash payments and grants. So I actually went and downloaded the actual open letter. Now, again, oh, he kept saying how transparent the process was, and except he also said, well, we couldn't tell you everything because they made us like that was justification for it. Right. But anyway, it wasn't transparent at all. And you can go download the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding between the city and state organizations and Amazon, the, basically the framework of the deal. You can read it. And if you read it, it is very clear that the whole thing is not all tax rebates and tax, tax discounts. There is a half a billion dollars of grants in it. They're not all at once and they're tied to targets. But literally, the deal calls for the state of New York to write checks up to a half a billion dollars to Amazon, right? And I'm like, yeah, okay, so you're lying in your letter, number one, regardless of whether you think this makes sense or not, you just literally left that out of your letter. Anyway, the whole, my point is that letter just pissed me off. But the deal was dead. So I was like, I tweeted out, God, this letter is internally inconsistent and terrible. And uh, But thank God this deal's dead. And my friend Buzz was like, well, you should, you know, you should say why this letter was so bad. And I was like, ah, who has time? And it's not my battle. And luckily it's dead anyway. But no. So then we come to this week and now there's this open letter signed by 80 CEOs and people in New York that want Amazon to come back. And there's rumors that the state hasn't given up and they're begging them. And I'm just like, no, dude, <laughs> they don't know what they're getting into. They're operating under faulty assumptions. They keep saying that the public supports this deal. The public supports this deal uh, very much until they learn about the deal. And then it is equal 50-50 or it's equal support. It's like 42-42 when they learn that there is a bunch of incentives and deals. And that's just when they learn there are incentives and deals. Like I am confident that if it lasts any longer and they learn what I'm telling you here, that like people keep glossing over in public that it literally entails a half a billion dollar cash grants to Amazon, that that number is going to go down and they know it too. Everybody knows it. People will not support the deal once it is clear how bad it is. Right. 
And I know taxes and jobs, but that's all a myth too. These jobs are already in New York. New York's already at full employment. You know what's going to happen if Amazon opens 25,000 jobs in New York? 25,000 people already working at engineering companies are going to like go work at Amazon. And those 25,000 openings are going to get people from somewhere else. And they're all going to trickle down to companies that eventually are like, hey, you know what? I'm just going to hire these people out of my Richmond, Virginia office or India. If you're an engineer that can work at Amazon in the United States and you're thinking about moving to New York, you can already move to New York and get a job. There are plenty of jobs for you now. This is not going to create more jobs in New York. More to the point, there's no need to give them money for it. Google just decided that they would expand another 5,000 jobs in New York without any incentives. It's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, I thought I was done ranting about that, but they're trying to bring it back, and now it's making me really angry. I was like, good riddance. And now it's, I don't think it's going to make it back, though. I don't think it's going to make it back. Okay, what else we got? Projects. I haven't done any of my projects, man. I've been working. I've been working all the time. Uh, I guess that's not fair because I did that stodgy thing. That that distracted me. I decided it's been in the back of my head as a task for a long time, and I decided that's the one that feels best to work on right now, so I did that. I'm having an existential crisis about being a writer. I'm glad I forestalled this until the Trek book was out. Maybe this is normal between books and I know I should turn to LaGuardia, but I just don't feel like doing it. I feel a little overworked and I feel like I'm going to take things easy for a little bit. So that's where things are going with that. Maybe some inspiration will strike. I'm still doing my 750 words to keep my writing limber. Uh, and some of those, you know, I've been uh, started another, I have a lot, I have 10 books that are started, but they're not really books. It's like, one's like, this is like philosophy. And every once in a while I'll write a really nice 750 words. It's like how I feel about religion or how I feel about love. And I'm just copying and pasting them into this philosophy book. So someday that might be close to something. And then of course there's the Jane book, one letter a month to Jane on her monthly birthday. So that one's still going. So, you know, I'm being productive. I'm being productive. I do have a full-time job and I'm a parent too. I don't know who I'm getting defensive to because I know none of you care. <laughs> Maybe my old friend, Annie, she was my productivity competitor back in the day. We both felt compulsion to be endlessly productive all the time. That's why we got along so well, I think. Anyway, right now, no book projects are ongoing. Uh, maybe that'll change. We'll see. Diet, uh, I'm definitely I'm down about five pounds from this peak I got, so I'm feeling a little bit better about it. I've just got more hardcore about things. I'm, uh, all the little cheats that have been working their way in, I'm, I'm getting out. So you know, I'm back around my Christmas weight. That's good. It's about 72 pounds down overall. But, uh, uh, you know, if I can do it the rest of the week, I'll be in pretty good shape. And then... Uh, I am switching my work schedule to two weeks, two days, two nights in New York, and then two weeks before I go again. Uh, so it'll be the same number of nights in New York, but every other week. Uh, but more to the point, that leaves me these runs of 12 to 13 days of dieting. And that was last year, really, when I lost the most weight. So I'm hoping that will really have an impact. It's not for two more weeks, though. So we will see there. That's it for this week. Wow, long one this week. 53 minutes. Jeez. Sorry, I went on a few rants. Hope you don't mind. Maybe uh, I'll be short and sweet next week. Thanks for listening. Hope you guys are doing well. Miss you guys. I might keep this on Saturday for a while because I might be able to bring Jane down to say hi. Maybe I'll have a guest next week. Wouldn't that be nice? We'll see. Take care.